Daniel chapter 11 verses 2 to 20. Now then, I tell you the truth, three more kings will arise in Persia and then a fourth who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king will arise who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he has arisen, his empire will be broken up and parcelled out towards the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised, because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. The king of the south will become strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger than he and will rule his own kingdom with great power. After some years, they will become allies. The daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance, but she will not retain her power, and he and his power will not last. In those days, she will be betrayed together with her royal escort and her father and the one who supported her. Someone from within her family will arise to take her place. He will attack the forces of the king of the north and enter his fortress. He will fight against them and be victorious. He will also seize their gods, their metal images and their valuable articles of silver and gold and carry them off to Egypt. For some years he will leave the king of the north alone. Then the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south but will retreat to his own country. His army which will sweep on like an irresistible flood and carry the battle as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south will march out in a rage and fight against the king of the north who will raise a large army but it will be defeated. When the army is carried off the king of the south will be filled with pride and will slaughter many thousands yet he will not remain triumphant. For the king of the north will muster another army larger than the first and after several years he will advance with a huge army fully equipped. In those times, many will rise against the king of the south. Those who are violent among your own people will rebel in fulfilment of the vision, but without success. Then the king of the north will come and build up siege ramps and will capture a fortified city. The forces of the south will be powerless to resist. Even their best troops will not have the strength to stand. The invader will do as he pleases. No one will be able to stand against him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land and will have the power to destroy it. He will determine to come with the might of his entire kingdom and will make an alliance with the king of the south and he will give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom. 
but his plans will not succeed or help him. Then he will turn his attention to the coastlands and will take many of them. But a commander will put an end to his insolence and will turn his insolence back on him. After this he will turn back towards the fortresses of his own country, but will stumble and fall to be seen no more. His successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendour. In a few years, however, he will be destroyed, yet not in anger or in battle. Daniel chapter 11 verses 21 to 45 He will be succeeded by a contemptible person who has not been given the honour of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure and he will seize it through intrigue. Then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him. Both it and a prince of the covenant will be destroyed. After coming to an agreement with him, he will act deceitfully. And with only a few people, he will rise to power. When the richest provinces feel secure, he will invade them and will achieve what neither his fathers nor his forefathers did. He will distribute plunder, loot and wealth among his followers. He will plot the overthrow of fortresses, but only for a time. With a large army, he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south. The king of the south will wage war with a large and very powerful army, but he will not be able to stand because of the plots devised against him. Those who eat from the king's provisions will try to destroy him. His armies will be swept away and many will fall in battle. The two kings, with their hearts bent on evil, will sit at the same table and lie to each other, but to no avail, because an end will still come at the appointed time. The king of the north will return to his own country with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action against it and then return to his own country. At the appointed time, he will invade the south again, but this time the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships of the western coastlands will oppose him and he will lose heart. Then he will turn back and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant. He will return and show favour to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist them, resist him. Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall, they will receive a little help 
and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified and made spotless until the time of the end for it will still come at the appointed time. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the God of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed, for what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his ancestors or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god but will exalt himself above them all. Instead of them, he will honour a god of fortresses, a god unknown to his ancestors. He will honour with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign god and will greatly honour those who acknowledge him. He will make them rulers over many people and will distribute the land at a price. At the time of the end of the king of the south will engage him in battle and the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. He will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. He will gain control of the treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt with the Libyans and Cushites in submission. But reports from the east and the north will alarm him and he will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain yet he will come to his end and no one will help him evening everyone now what um, what is daniel 11 all about and it certainly seems really quite a difficult passage, doesn't it? And uh, in fact, as I've been preparing, I, I came across someone who wrote this about it. Uh, we do not see how Daniel 11 could be used for a sermon. Well, we're going to give it a go, but it obviously seems as if we uh, would need a bit of help. So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us tonight. Father, please, uh, would you help us to understand this? Would you help us to apply it? Help us to work this through and to, uh, we pray, Lord, above all, that you would speak to us. We believe, we know, this is your word. And we pray that you would speak to us this evening for Jesus' sake. Amen. 
Well, in the 14th century, Britain had been in the grip of uh, a global pandemic, the Black Death, which, uh, well, we don't know exact numbers, of course, back in those days, but it could have been perhaps 200 million people uh, lost their lives across the world during the Black Death. And in 1381, the economic situation and the political situation of the country uh, resulting from the Black Death led to what is now known as the Peasants' Revolt. It began in Kent, it moved up to London, they kind of invaded London, it spread over the home counties, it went up into East Anglia and eventually went across the country. And during this peasants' revolt, the young King Richard II, in the end, mobilised his army and uh, they defeated the, uh, the peasants and those who were revolting against the king's rule. The revolt was quenched. Now, when we get to Daniel chapter 11... Uh, we see a world in revolt as well. Uh, or as I've called this evening, it's a revolting world. We live in a world which is in revolt against its creator, against its lord, against its maker. And that means that life for those who belong to our creator, our lord, our master and maker, for those who belong to the Lord God, it means that life is pretty likely going to be difficult, if not now, when actually we're promised it will be difficult at some point in our lives. So let's try to understand this passage and, uh, uh, and see what Daniel chapter 11 is saying. It's actually uh, part of a longer passage, which includes chapter 10. So we need to just dip back into chapter 10 and verse 14, because that's a really important verse for us. So chapter 10 and verse 14 uh, says this. Now, I've come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. That is not the end of days, but it's talking about the future of the Jewish people. And uh, that's very significant. It's, uh, it's God's people. So, although there's, there's an awful lot of detail here, and we'll see some of the historical things, we can actually pinpoint a number of very specific things as we look through Daniel chapter 11. The significant thing is what it's saying about and to God's people, the Jewish people then, and of course applying that to God's people, Christian people today. This is a prophecy about the future. For them, it was, and for Daniel, it was a prophecy uh, about 200 years beyond his life. And then we look back to that time now, of course, well over 2,000 years in the past. And, uh, and it's written in Hebrew because it's aimed at God's people then, not the Aramaic that had been there for the earlier chapters of Daniel, which is much more a global language in those days. And it concerns, well, it's, it, it's focused down on the, Daniel's writing about the first year of King Cyrus. He's the, the guy who said the Jews could go back to the Promised Land about 539 BC. But Daniel is still there in Babylon. And in verse 3, it talks about, well, let's have a look at verse 3 here. It's talking about Alexander the Great. The mighty, a mighty king will arise, who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. Uh, and that is Alexander the Great. He uh, died in, in 323 BC and uh, around about the age of 32. He'd done extraordinary things in his young life. His empire was huge, but after he died, it was then divided up, as we saw when we looked at Daniel chapter 8, between four generals. Two of those were very strong generals, and it's from those two that two dynasties came. So in the north, you've got 
what is referred to repeatedly here as the King of the North. That's a dynasty, not just one king, but a number of kings through through time. And uh, uh, and the King of the North, well, they were based in Antioch. And so the kings of the north are talking, they often use the word Antiochus because they came from Antioch. It was the Seleucid dynasty. And then you got the king of the south, and uh, that was based originally on Ptolemy. And an awful lot of the, uh, the guys who followed after him were Ptolemy this, Ptolemy that, Ptolemy the other. And so you've got the king of the north, the Antiochus guys. You've got the kings of, or the king of the south and another dynasty, uh, the Ptolemy guys. And they are uh, in conflict with each other uh, for oh, a couple of hundred years. And so when they're saying the king of the north or the king of the south, it will be a different king, but of the same dynasty. And these two dynasties are going against each other uh, for a long, long time. And then when we get to, uh, I think it's in verse 21, yeah, 21, we then find one particular king of the north, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who we will uh, talk a little bit more about. We came across him in chapter 8. He's evil. He's satanic. And he's really significant for God's people. But we'll get there in just a little bit. So we've got these two dynasties, uh, which are, uh, um, actually they are revolting dynasties. So we saw Alexander the Great, verse 3, and he did as he pleased. It says here, uh, with great power and do as he pleases. And that little phrase, doing as he pleases, is in verse 16. And it's in verse 36 as well, talking about these dynasties and the kings doing as they please. And that is a description of kings who are just doing what they want. They have no reference to other people, to a greater power, no recognition of God in their life or in their kingdom. And therefore they do as they please. They are living a life of revolt. So it's a history of dynasties. Doing what they pleased, thinking that they were in charge, and paying no attention to God whatsoever. Now, within that overview, we can nail down uh, at least a couple of, uh, we can nail down quite a lot, but I'm going to give you two specific examples of where we can see here is something that we know actually really happened in history. All this stuff really happened in history. These things are really specific. So, for instance, have a look at verse 8 of Daniel chapter 11. After some years, they will become allies. That's the north and south. The daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance, but she will not retain her power, and he and his power will not last. In those days, she will be betrayed together with her royal escort and her father and the one who supported her. That is talking about Ptolemy II, the king of the south, his daughter uh, uh, Berenice, and she married Seleucid, the king of the north. Or it was uh, uh, it was Antiochus the the uh, the second king of the north of the Seleucid Empire. So you've got the daughter of the king of the south marrying the king of the north. It happened around about 250 BC. She was betrayed. She was executed along with her entourage. Then uh, here's another look at verse uh, 17, for instance. Um, He will uh, determine to come with the might of his entire kingdom and will make an alliance with the king of the south. And he will give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom, but his plans will not succeed or help him. Now, that is talking about Antiochus III, king of the north, his daughter Cleopatra, who married Ptolemy V from the south. 
And uh, it was a nasty plan by Antiochus III to infiltrate the king of the south's kingdom. Um, but his daughter then switched loyalties. So instead of being loyal to her dad, the king of the north, she then became loyal to her husband, the king of the south. And uh, so it all went thoroughly pear-shaped for uh, Antiochus, the king of the north. And uh, he then went on to attack the coastal towns in a fit of rage as a result of it in Asia Minor until he came across a Roman commander, Lucius Cornelius Scipio in verse 18. And in, that was in 190 BC. He returned home humiliated and he died on the way. So there are some very specific things and there's lots of history that we can investigate here. But the point is this. It's a revolting world. It's a revolting world. A world in revolt against its creator and Lord. With leaders doing as they pleased. And then it gets even worse because uh, we see the arrival of Antiochus IV Epiphanes in verse 21. And the rest of the chapter is about him. Look at verse 21. He will be succeeded, that's his uh, predecessor, by a contemptible person who has not been given the right Uh, given the honour of royalty. He'll invade the kingdom when his people feel secure and he will seize it through intrigue. Absolutely historically accurate. Of course, this whole chapter is. And uh, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV, uh, he was evil, manipulative. He had no right to be the king. He he got to that position by manipulation and intrigue. Uh, He behaved as if he were God. On his coins, he had them inscribed with with the inscription Theos Epiphanes. In other words, God manifest. What blasphemy. What absolute blasphemy. This man was evil. Uh, He was more like the devil manifest. And he was having a huge impact on the world, on the ancient Middle East and on God's people. Just like the serpent, in fact, in Genesis chapter 3 in his behaviour. He swept away enemies. He made deceitful alliances. He rewarded his own allies. He waged a continual war against the king of the south. He was violent, he hated the Jews and their country and their city and their faith and their temple and did everything he possibly could just to stamp them out, to rub them out. Like you get a moth indoors these days, you might just put your thumb on it. Well, Antiochus was trying to just uh, uh, rub out the Jews and anything Jewish that, uh, that he came across. Here we have uh, Israel specifically mentioned, verse 21, the kingdom. Um, Israel, the geographical place called the beautiful land or the glorious land, some translations have it. Look at verse uh, 16 or verse 41 there. And then Jerusalem in verse 45, beautiful holy mountain. Uh, And he wants to rub it out like a moth on your lighter coloured wallpaper these summer nights. He was evil, pure evil great power and it's a world in revolt a revolting world now it may not be quite so flagrant today but we still live today don't we in actually a revolting world I mean so God tells us what marriage is and we say no thanks Uh, we want to do it our way so we'll redefine marriage we have no right to do that that is an act of revolt against the God who created us. Um, Or say God gives us our gender. And okay, there are some medical situations where the the genes and everything get all a bit mucked up uh, and it's really difficult, really difficult for the individuals concerned. Um, But generally speaking, the principle is that we're not free to just to choose our gender because we feel like it. We're really not. And that we should want to do so is, is... 
it, it's just part of living in a, in, a, in a revolting world, a world in revolt. And every day at the moment, people are, uh, people are saying things like, well, yes, I know the government have given us guidelines about what we should do about our behaviour and social distancing and so on, um, but they're only guidelines, so we'll do as we want. The trouble is, as Christian people, we want to say, these are government guidelines, so we won't do what we want, we'll do what the government guides us to do. You see, it's a, it's a revolting world, but Christians will want to keep the guidelines, even if we'd much prefer not to. Uh, just talking to our son uh, Ben the other day, and he was, um, uh, uh, he was saying about how some of his friends, work colleagues and so on, uh, he's getting quite a lot of jip, really, because uh, uh, it's four months now since he touched his girlfriend, Katie, and, and they think he's absolutely crazy. But he's saying, well, it's the government guidelines. It's what the government tell us to do. So we do. Now, a revolting world. But God's still in charge. And we see this all over Daniel chapter 11. God still reigns. So in verse 4, it talks about the, the land being par- or the, yes, land being parceled out. The implication is that, that God is doing it, like you know, mum might serve out the pudding on a Sunday lunch kind of thing. Um, or in at the end of verse 12, where uh, it says this, yet he will not remain triumphant. Uh, it's talking about the, the king of the south will be filled with pride, slaughter many thousands, but will not remain triumphant because God is in charge in the end. Oh, in the end, we will see the fact that God is in charge. That's a, way of, a better, better way of putting it, isn't it? And in verse 19, we see that God rules and not the king. After this, he will turn back toward the fortress of his own country, but will stumble and fall to be seen no more. Because God is the ruler. God is the one who is uh, in charge of this world. Uh, he is the one uh, we see in verses 27 and 29, where it talks about the appointed time. And God does the appointing of the time when things will happen, of the end of days, of the day when Jesus will return in judgment. That is God's role. That's what God does. He is in charge of this world. And uh, uh, in verse 45, we see Mr. Evil there at the end of the chapter. And uh, how does chapter 11 end? He will pitch his royal tents, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain, Jerusalem. Yet he will come to his end. And no one will help him. God is in charge. God rules this world. It is a a world in revolt, but God is still in charge. Have no fear, have no doubt. In a revolting world for those who know God, in other words, in the Old Testament, the Jews in Jerusalem, in the New Testament, Christian people. But how do we respond? Well, the key section here for how we should respond to this is in verses 32 to 35 of our chapter. Uh, there was a guy, guy called uh, Ephraim Maltby, and he said that Jesus promised his disciples three things. They'd be absurdly happy, completely fearless, and in constant trouble. I think that's just about right, really. And we see it here with God's people, the Jews, in Daniel 11, and, uh, and we know it today. It's a revolting world. We know that God is still on the throne. And so what do we do? First thing we do is this. We resist. We resist. Um, There was the Italian revolutionary Garibaldi, uh, a leader of the Italian revolutionaries. And uh, he was summoning others to his cause. And he cried this. He that loves Italy, let him follow me. I promise him hardship, suffering, death. But he that loves Italy, let him follow me. Uh, And that's like us and Jesus. 
isn't it? We follow Jesus, we resist the evil world, we know that there will be difficult paths, maybe suffering, maybe death, but we will still do this. And you look at verse 32, I think this is astounding. With flattery, he will corrupt, this is Antiochus Epiphanes IV, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him, will firmly resist an evil emperor, an evil ruler, and they will do it firmly. Some Jews had broken the covenant, maybe they had been persuaded to stand back from uh, obeying and following Jewish rules and religion and so on. Uh, he corrupted them with flattery, but at the end, the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Well done, guys. Well done. I mean, that entailed a military revolt. It entailed, involved sacrifice and death. It was tough for those Jews. Who would have wanted to be a, a, one of God's people in the second century BC? No, thank you. That was really, really tough. It involved the revolt of Judas Maccabeus, and uh, we read about, about that in the Apocrypha, in 1 and 2 Maccabees, uh, which is sometimes printed in between our Old and New Testaments and our Bibles. It's not part of the Bible. <clears throat> it's like a Christian book that's added to it uh, in, some, in some Bibles. And uh, that revolt there may be that little help that's referred to in verse 34. But who would have been one of God's people then? We live and we resist evil in a revolting world. The people who know God, the true people of God, verse 32, uh, I think they're also the wise, as are described in verse 33. And it's the wise who instruct many, beginning of verse 33, who fall by the sword. So you carry on, uh, for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. Um, that will be talking about the Jewish people, but it's, it's a general thing as well. It's a general thing as well for those who are God's people. Talk to Christians in persecuted countries today. And they will be joined by some who are not sincere, verse 34, and some of the wise will stumble. We'll catch a little bit more of that just briefly in the next point. But they resist. And we see that resistance is hard. It is tough. It is difficult. It is complicated. It is sacrificial. But Christian people resist evil. We stand up for what we believe. We don't m merge into the background. The principle, principle remains. It's a revolting world and we want to and we will resist. We, we won't be joining in with the way the rest of the world does stuff. Um, a few weeks back, there was on the BBC, there was a, a couple were interviewed. Well, there was a story about a couple. It was just when we were allowed to get married again, after or get married after the gap since March. And uh, there was a couple and uh, uh, they... Uh, were getting married, they arranged it at very short notice up in London and uh, and he was saying, well, uh, he was interviewed and he was saying, well, we're Christians and we uh, we haven't lived together, slept together uh, and his name on the BBC was James Dock actually his name was James Doherty son of David and Ruth, Doherty and he and Natasha had been standing up and living their life for Jesus and standing against the way that the world will do things, and good for them. It's a revolting world. We resist. Or do we? Or do we? I mean, do we name Jesus as Lord, as King of the world, but we just go on exactly the same, exactly the same way as the revolting world is living? We have to be different. 
we have to stand up for what we for what we believe in we can't be the same as everyone else we mustn't be the same as everyone else we're not the same as everyone else we're different we're not the revol- you know we're not in this revolutionary world we're in this revolutionary world but we're not the revolutionaries because we follow the king the master the lord and we don't want to be pressured to be part of uh, the revolution when we're, uh, when we're not part of it. Listen to this. I came across this uh, as I was preparing. I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. A decision has been made. I'm a disciple of his. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away or be still. The past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, colourless dreams, tamed visions, worldly talking, cheap giving and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits or popularity. I don't have to be right, to be first, to be recognised, to be praised, to be regarded, to be rewarded. I now live by faith, lean on his presence, walk by patience, am uplifted by prayer and I labour with power. My life is set. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My real companions are few. My guide is reliable. My mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the enemy or wander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up shut up, let up, until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till all know, and work till he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he'll have no problem recognising me. My banner will be clear. Those were uh, words found in the desk drawer of a young Zimbabwean pastor who had been brutally executed. We resist in a revolting world. And the last thing is to say we are refined. Look at verse 35. Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified and made spotless until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. God is in charge. He rules the world. The appointed time for the world and judgment day hasn't, hasn't changed. It is still set when Jesus will return to this world. And God wants to refine us, to purify us, to make us spotless and ready for that time when, G- when he returns. Like a furnace and skimming the dross off the surface so that you have pure gold. Pure gold. And the impurities are taken out. The refiner's fire is a good thing. And we see that in the Bible, don't we? For instance, just in Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 9, I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is our God. God's a refining God preparing us for glory and sometimes as we resist the revolting world that can be hard loss of family loss of friends lots of job loss of inheritance maybe loss of position loss of influence loss of home 
loss of pension perhaps, loss of what others would call human rights, loss of reputation. But what a benefit. What a benefit, being prepared, being made ready for what we long for. Uh, it will still come at the appointed time that Jesus will return, judgment day, and then we go to be with him in the new heaven and the new earth. Uh, and we'll enter that for which we are now being refined as we live in and yet we resist a revolting world. We're going to pray now and as we close I'm just going to use a prayer of John Wesley. So let's bow our heads and pray. I'm no longer my own but yours. Put me to what you will Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to you, your pleasure and disposal. And now, glorious and blessed Lord, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. And this covenant now made on earth let it be satisfied in heaven. Amen.